This is Slashers, a horror movie podcast brought to you by two, wait, not dudes this time. It's Jake and his lady, his wife, his betrothed, his nuptial life mate, Sierra. Greet yourself. Hello. That's it? Just one word? Slashers pod audience. Podience. Nice. <laughs> you have to really hit that D though, because otherwise it sounds like Slashers potience. And it sounds like frequency with which... We vacate our battles. <laughs> so, wife, how are you today? Uh, good. I've had my coffee and a donut, so I feel like I um, started my day great. There you go. Like a, like a police officer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so, we are doing the movie Mimic from August 21st, 1997. I think I might have seen this for my birthday when I was 10 years old. Not even kidding, because my birthday is the 20th. That does not surprise me at all. And watching this, I'm like, yeah. And to me, I thought this was a classic movie. Apparently, no one else did. Uh, so I wanted to give you Guillermo del Toro, the director of the film, his synopsis of what the movie was that I heard in this interview. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to make it your own. He says, it's sort of a gothic fable that shows man's tampering with nature and creating a new species of biological weapon to stop a plague, a booming plague that's killing children under 10. Basically, the consequences of that tampering. Do you think that's a fair description or how would you do it better? Uh, no, I, do, I feel like that is a fair description. I mean, it definitely is that classic uh, of man versus nature, mm -hmm. you know, like man trying to change nature and nature... Finding a way. He stole my I, joke. I totally am. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I take notes, voracious <laughs> notes on a legal pad whenever I'm watching these movies. And so multiple times in this movie, there's the Jeff Goldblum nature finds a way bit. And I wrote it down earlier in the notes. And then I got, I wrote it down a second time. And I think the third time I wrote it down, I like look over to Sierra on the couch and I'm like, it uh, finds a way. And then she's stealing my material. Thanks, babe. Uh, so... You asked me not to put you on the spot like I do, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Now you're on the spot. You need to I felt I was just on the spot. I want a one-sentence description <laughs> of the facts of the movie, not the theme of the movie. No pressure, no pressure, go. Uh, just the facts? So What happens in the movie? In one sentence. In one sentence. <laughs> you told me not to put you on the spot, so you realized I had to do it. Yeah, I know. And I didn't have a whole lot of time. Literally right before I pressed the record button, you were like... Don't put me on the spot. So you put me on the spot with an inventive way to put you on the spot. <laughs> a couple comes up with a new species of bug to fight back against a disease, but it goes horribly wrong. There you go. I don't know if it's horribly wrong, but I think that, that you know. Well, I mean. For the people in this film, it's horribly wrong. Yes. For the thousands, if not millions of children that who get don't to live. know about it. Yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm dope with that. All right, so this movie shot on a budget of $25 million. How much do you think it made at the box office? Oh, and it's not going to be good. Not good. $1 million? No, no, no. Oh. It, it made its money back. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> like, barely. And when you factor in, like, the advertising costs, it did not make money. Because the gross, at least domestically, that I could find was $25,480,000. Which, $480,000 would change our lives. Right, right. But when you're the Harvey Weinstein group, you're like, <laughs> nope, not good enough. <laughs> well, so what about, like, residuals? Like, afterwards? Oh, they probably did well. Like, it this was on sci-fi all the time. Okay, okay. That's what I was going to say. Because you, you said it wasn't a cult, like a classic. So you don't think it has like a following now. 
I think that people are, I think it was not, you know, I hate when people say it was ahead of its time, but I think in a lot of ways it is. And I think the fact that Guillermo del Toro went on to be successful makes this movie look better, you know, because it looks like the sophomore effort of a guy who had just come off the movie Pronos versus, oh, it's just some schlock. Right. I think people like delve into it a bit more. Also in industry, it was pretty well received. It won a Saturn award for best makeup. So that's kind of neat. Uh, the movie has a, a running time of 105 minutes. How'd you feel? The was it was it a breezy film? That's how I always describe it. If it's you know if it doesn't feel like a slog's on. I feel like there was a part that kind of I, I lost a little bit of interest just because it, it I felt like it was stretched too much. Um, I really liked the beginning. Yeah. I even felt like it had a pretty strong like middle, but the middle to end. Yeah. Was a little. When they're Drawn meandering out. through the subway, yeah. the story yes. is meandering. Yes. Yeah, couldn't agree more. But I think that if it was anything longer than 105 minutes, I might be upset, but this is fine. Um, so the weekend this came out, here are its competitors. <laughs> now, this movie was number four at the box office that weekend. Not great. It was competing against G.I. Jane, Leave It to Beaver, Money Talks. And so those three beat it. And no. Then, swear. <laughs> And then the Pippi Longstockings remake, this beat it. Well, barely. I don't know if I would agree with that. Yeah. But. As the Gilmore Girls fanatic. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The opening weekend was $7.8 million. So could have been worse. It's based on a short story from uh, Donald A. Wolheim, who actually wrote the story under a pseudonym. In 1942, uh, they took a lot of liberties with that story, which I read today. That is breezy. I mean, it's maybe three pages long, uh, but I really enjoyed it. I'm going to enjoy cross-examining you as to the facts of it later. Now, what the pseudonym he used was Martin Pearson, which if you were a reader, are you more inclined to read Donald Wolheim or Martin Pearson? I feel like it would depend on the content, mm-hmm. okay. but if I'm reading like a short story, I feel like it would be the latter of the two. Really? I thought Wolheim because it sounds so like Van Helsing-ish. I don't know. I think I feel like that name it sounds a little bit more like classical literature okay. rather than, you know, a yeah. short story about bugs. I could definitely see him <laughs> with like the Beethoven hair like flopped up right. in the, like you know, I don't know if it's fair because I never actually saw Beethoven, but my mental image of him <laughs> is always, well I didn't see him because oh. he was dead before <laughs> yes, I was born. Yes. I thought so, you were talking about the movie Beethoven. With the dog? <laughs> yes. That's why I was like, I don't know where you're going with this. I, I mean, I could. Yeah. Dogs have crazy hair. So, I, but yes. It's anyway. <laughs> My mental image. This shows you what a creature of cult movies and just schlock I am. Whenever I think of Beethoven. And how much I am not. <laughs> yeah. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. When he's playing the keyboards, that's what I imagine. And my mind goes to the dog movie. <laughs> that, that's, that's a very <laughs> brief synopsis of our entire relationship. Pretty much. I feel like what's interesting about this movie, I had talked to you about watching it a couple times because it's been on Shudder and I still remember it fondly. I had seen it as recently as like 10 years ago and I, mm-hmm. I, I liked it and I thought you would like it. You notoriously do not like horror films. Correct. I think one of the greatest testaments to my love for you is that in the first four years of our relationship... I made you watch one horror film, and it went real bad. It and did. The Babadook. Yeah. And you were mortified. Yes. And so I felt so guilt-stricken <laughs> that I stopped watching horror movies. And now I've brought it back with Gusto and a podcast that nobody listens to. Uh, <laughs> so Mia Sorvino, she had just won an Academy Award for The Mighty Aphrodite. She ends up in this movie. That's the same lady from Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, mind you. In a, an interview, she described the movie. She was saying, I get frightened by these kinds of films. 
and I don't want to be in them. But then as she's reading the script, she described it as fearsome but fascinating. Is that how you would describe the movie that you watched? For her character or just in general? Because I feel like for her character, I could see that. I mean, she's like a strong female character, which at the time I'm sure probably wasn't that prevalent, like compared to today, you know, like it's just much more, you know, publicized. It was good because GI Jane. Well, that is true. But I don't think that was, you know, a symptom of the entire culture at the time. Right. Very much right. Um, And also that it was almost like a shtick to have a female protagonist at that point, I think, where mm -hmm. it was like the gimmick of, hey, ladies, get your your pink Bic pens and come see this movie. (laughs) Right, right. So fearsome, but... Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, So like I said, I think for her character, I could see that fearsome, you know, nature and fascinating in the sense that it's it's an interesting concept, you know, like it intrigued me. It kept my attention and I feel like it wasn't that scary. So it was doable for me. I could get through it without hiding my eyes in my chest yes (laughs) um yeah i think it's right when we get to the talk about the actual story uh the story is very quaint and i think they expand on it in a very organic way and it's very interesting Mm -hmm. you know you've heard me rant about this a lot even before becoming a dad where i hate when a horror movie relies on children to be horrifying horrifying. yes not horrifying that that was way different (laughs) than what i meant to say uh horrifying so in this movie, we start off, there's a hospital, kids are dying. Truly very haunting. The yes. imagery is severe. Yeah. Uh, the, the canopies over the beds that are underlit, super creepy. Yes. Um, and then just the images of the children, like, hyperventilating, yeah. also terrifying. Not stoked about that. No. I hope they all have outlet monitors on. Yes. For the parents out there, you know <laughs> what I'm saying. But the point is... This doesn't feel exploitative because this is the only part. This is the justification for somebody to go beyond, right? Like in Frankenstein's monster, I wrote Frankenstein. His justification of bringing somebody back from the dead is to defeat death. So he has a good moral reason for doing so, albeit somewhat misguided because of his like want of fame from his scientific achievement. In this, it shows... Her direct actions save these children. So she has technically committed a genetic atrocity in what she's done with these bugs, right. but for the best motivation. Right. Well, and, and rushed the testing, yeah. right? That we, Which we find out. Right. You've got so, to get this out to market. All right. Yeah. So I feel like it's similar, like you were saying, with the Frankenstein to the pet cemetery. Very uh, much like, you know, he had that motivation to try and save his child or, yeah. you know, to right the wrong of him his neglect i guess and you know parental neglect and not not that these parents you know wanted their kids to get this disease it was just happening because it was being carried by cockroaches right which are you know notoriously hard to kill so how do you kill like cockroach that carries this disease well you must come up with this other you know new species yeah so that's one of the things that's interesting because as i watched the film probably six or seven times in my lifetime by this point, I never thought of the Judas breed bug as a biological weapon. Mm-hmm. But then when Guillermo del Toro says, oh, it's a weapon, I was like, no, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It is meant to seek and destroy. Yep. Um, and it, what's interesting is I think it is so downplayed. So Guillermo del Toro really 
hated this movie for a long time until he got to do a director's cut and he hated how it you know it, it was over explanatory there was a lot of stuff that was shot by a second unit that he resented uh which was you know kind of an industry term where they were shooting other stuff while he was working and hmm. they just put it in the movie kind of almost interesting and so i think that he t- I, I don't know if he wants to say take advantage of the audience's understanding of what's going on because this is a lot of heady information to kind of give to people yeah uh, so when they're talking about creating this bug, it seems just a means to an end. It almost seems like a delivery device. Like, oh, we just put it in a bug because. Whereas his view of it is, no, it, this is the perfect killing machine. Yeah. Which then makes the plot of the rest of the movie so much more Machiavellian. Right. I guess, compared, especially, like I said, compared to the short story. Um, so we start off, you know, it's pretty brief uh, and breezy. It goes from the hospital to boom they're doing the testing and they're releasing these bugs Uh, that was very quick transition yeah did you like the severity i i made me really kind of take stock of what was going on in the scene when they have the hazmat suits on underneath the hazmat suit they also had a gas mask and so it was one of those things where it's like you put on two condoms you like double can't get pregnant Like, it's kind of that kind of situation. sure that's how that works, but yeah. It's science, baby. <laughs> um, but I really liked that imagery, because I don't, I can't recall ever seeing in a movie hazmat suit and gas mask. That's interesting. I didn't even notice that. But, uh, you know, upon my first viewing, I think I was just more focused on, like, what was going to pop out, because I felt like I was just trying to prepare myself for the worst. Um, but, uh, yeah, that that is interesting how that it was... It, like you said, it was so severe that they had to take these extra precautions. Although they were adults, so I wasn't... Yeah. It was... I don't know. Anyway, was it only attacking children or was it also attacking adults? But it seemed, you know... I feel like the adults might be able to be like a, a carrier. You know, right, yes. Uh, an unwitting carrier. So before we get too far into it, uh, for those of you who are avid listeners of the show and ingesters of my schlock, uh, we usually do nicknames for all characters in the movie because... <laughs> We're hockey goons, you know. My beautiful wife is going to a hockey game with me today. Very excited. Uh, So she is honorarily a goon. The prettiest goon I've ever seen, by the way. Uh, Not trying to kiss ass. Unless it's working. Anyway, uh, so we have... (laughs) (laughs) Which, I don't know if you guys heard. You didn't hear. So she was bragging about her ability to ingest slurpy drinks without making a sound. I'm impressed. I have headphones in. Not Not a peep. So we have Mia, Mia Sorvino is playing, uh, playing Susan. As far as nicknames go, probably just going to call her Romy and Michelle. Reason being, I don't know if she was Romy or Michelle, so I'm just going to say Romy and Michelle. <laughs> and I can't tell you either. I mean, I've seen the movie, but I don't remember. Yeah, so then you have Josh Brolin playing a character named, imaginatively, Josh. Uh, <laughs> with his, his hair in this movie is like Tom Cruise from Mission Impossible 2 with a mullet. It is amazingly bad, and he is so fortunate that most of his scenes take place in a dark, dank sewer. Yeah. Agree, disagree? Yeah, so we're, what are we going to call him, Mullet? Uh, no, we're calling him Thanos. Oh. Come on. Well, I feel like that's very obvious. Okay, fine. Then... Or jaw, I would have just said, like, jawline. I don't know, because that's what I think of when I think of Thanos now, is just that giant face. The chin. Yeah. Okay, well, I... Anyway, so we can call him Thanos. That's fine. Well, no, you made me feel bad about it. So we're calling him, let's call him Billy Ray Cyrus. That's of his hair. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a good reference. I just I know, know that he's a country guy who was popular in the 90s. So I assume he had a mullet. 
moving on. Uh, you got the, uh, funny enough, I had another Marvel Comics comparison. The Susan's husband, Dr. Uh, Peter Mann. Uh, so n it's not that it's a superhero named Peter Mann. It's just funny to say that fast. He looks like Chris Evans, from, who plays Captain America, mixed with Alec Baldwin, who played the Shadow. So we could call him Captain Shadow, the America, or we could just call him Peter Mann. I like Peter Mann. Thank you. Never, yeah. And then we have uh, Leonard who is played by Charles S. Dutton. He was the Metro cop. Yes. Okay. Is it racist if I say the cop from Die Hard? He is black. He is a cop. But the tone of voice when he's like exclaiming reminds me of it. We don't have to call him that. I feel guilty having said this, but just let me know. Is it racist? Uh, I don't know. I feel like you're just making a connection. I don't know. I feel bad about it now. Let's call him Show Tunes. <laughs> okay. I like that better because okay. he sings... Uh, Manny, played by Giancarlo Giannini. Uh, gotta do, we'll just call him the shoe shine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, for the Gorillas fans out there, they're probably gonna be like, got the new shoe shine. Oh. I honestly, I had not thought of that song in years until I said the word shoe shine that quickly. So that's the way my brain works. <sighs> uh, moving on. Oh, and then there's the kid. Oh, yeah, so I was gonna, I was just gonna be like, what about the kid? You get to name the kid. You oh, no. You named Spoon. our kid. Oh, boring. Come on. Whatever. Fine. Spoons it is. Luckily, he's not terribly in the film, so we can move past. Uh, so when they use the bug, it's called the Judas breed. They use termite and mantid DNA. Uh, they put him in the sewer. One thing I thought was interesting. So when they're putting it in the sewer, in that you know, the Roach Motel, the silver thing, kind of looks like Capitol Records building. Right. It looks pretty small. But when she has the the thing in the jar at the press conference, that motherfucker is huge. Yeah, I noticed that too. And that's why I was like, okay, so there's already genetic mutation happening. I don't know if that was just, I, like you said, I don't know if that was like a viewpoint. I think what it comes down to is practical effect versus computer yeah, effect. Yeah, well, that's true. Because when they're doing the computer, they're not using scale probably the same way mm -hmm. as they didn't know. And also it's to a degree, it's going to be warped by the shape of the jar, but it was just very, because when, then when you see the other one later and it's big, I was like, yeah, that's about as big as it was mm -hmm. in the jar. But... Well, I never having seen this movie, like I very much thought that the carrier that she had the Judas bugs in, I actually thought when she took it off and put it in the pile of the cockroaches that it was going to spray a gas because it looks like it had little um, vents, vents right? in yeah. the in the top. And then I thought she was going to have to go into further into the sewer system and then like place the other ones because it looks like to be four or five layers, but she only took off took off the top layer. And so I was like, oh, okay, you know, not knowing I had never seen it, so I didn't know where it was going. But uh I thought it was interesting when they when she took the bugs out of it and put them into the other species. I think you're thinking that because we recently watched the uh seven on Netflix and when they do the fancy dining establishment, they have the food stacked in the food in those trays. Maybe. I think that might be it. Well, no, but I totally thought the same thing. It looks like a bunch of hubcaps stacked on yes. top of each other. So you'd think you one here, one here. Yeah, I'm like, okay, so why is this the top? Why wasn't it just this one thing? Anyway, I guess it, you know, wouldn't have looked Maybe it's implied that it is multiple, and then it's just, we only, we only see, see. Okay, so that's, a, like, my, also my thinking was, okay, she seemed really terrified to go into the sewer, yeah. right? Through the curtain and in, you know, with the hazmat suit. And then she stops like 10 feet in and just puts the bugs in and that's it. And I'm like, 
Why were you so terrified? And also, knowing what was coming at the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, I could go. I could have done that. I could have just gone in and placed bugs down. Why was this such a huge deal? What's a big fucking deal? But it was very suspenseful. Yeah. So, you know, anyway. It's effective. Yes. And it, it, it's, it, it's not the movie. It's the plot point for the movie. Right. So then we, we get into the thrust of it. Three years later, you see a little Asian preacher man uh, who I think his name was Harry Ping, which... Uh, yes. No, not okay. Because <laughs> that image in my brain is not okay. Um, so he's running. He appears to be kind of wounded. He jumps off of the roof of a building onto some scaffolding yeah. or like you know window washing yeah. which i think is kind of fun because it's dilapidated and also the building that's on is dilapidated because nobody is washing those windows because they look haggard he then falls uh hits his head on a paint can explosion you really like the fact that they replaced the gore yes with the paint go on i thought that was interesting because when he falls you know he, the scaffolding had cans of paint on it like they were trying to redo the building or something and so that falls apart first and so the cans of paint hit the concrete and then he does and his head actually when he falls hits one of the paint cans and that splatters white paint rather than it it's you know showing blood so it's great i mean a lot i mean if you're really in the know when it comes to some of these films you'll see like going back as far as the comics code authority the comics found really interesting ways to avoid blood because mm-hmm. it wasn't allowed so mm-hmm. if you've heard me rant about how much like i love barry windsor smith's art because he does black blood and that's what um peter jackson famously did in the lord of the rings movies uh to get around it that you had um you know in alien uh with the droids or whatever you call them the mm-hmm. cyborgs though mm-hmm. they have the white milky blood mm-hmm. in evil dead they had the white milky blood mm-hmm. but what's great is it, this is so organic it, it completely fits and you just move on yeah and so he then gets dragged under this crawl space and let me tell you no, for, into a gutter like it's the sewer okay i think i think that's in the building though but it doesn't matter one way or another i thought it was outside. i think it's in the building but you can agree to disagree i'm not I re-watching this movie but whatever. It's a little crawl space. And for a scene with no blood, this is a violent scene because it's all like relatable pain. And we've talked about that on prior episodes. He falls like 10 feet. You know, it gets the wind knocked out of him. Then he falls, cracks his head. You know, that reminds me of my child. Then when he's like being pulled under, his rib cage is really crushing and cracking. Oh, yeah. And you can hear that. Oh, so good. Did you think it was effective? Yeah, I did. Um, with no gore, I mean, right, exactly. It's it's horrifying. It's horrific in its relatability because I can't ever relate to having my intestines spill out, right. but I can certainly relate to getting cross checked in the ribs and be like, "Fuck that, yeah, daddy don't want none." See, and I had already assumed that he was dead, like okay. from the fall. So I was, uh, you know, for me, I'm like, uh, you know, like I feel like it was a good effect because you, as the audience, hear his ribs cracking and trying, you know, kind of like being pulled under, but I don't feel like he was feeling the pain. Like he wasn't screaming. He wasn't, you know, so I felt like that made me feel better. Cause I'm like, okay, you know, it's not torturous. Yeah. And so you look across the street and you have the autistic kid spoons is looking out the window uh, in the movie. His name is Chewy. Uh, he interestingly knows the preacher's shoe size and what type of shoes. Mm-hmm. And he starts clicking his spoons together. Mm-hmm. He has the back end of the spoons, and he clicks it and makes sounds, kind of like the clicking of the insect mandibles. And he keeps saying to himself, funny shoes, funny shoes, as the scene 
washes over. Let me ask you, because I used to do disability rights law, so I'm super sensitive in movies when they make autistic children or people super powered, because that's not the case, and it's not a plot device. Mm -hmm. It's a condition, and uh, I think that in this movie, more than any movie that I can recall with not like a character, they don't outright say he's autistic, but it's pretty clearly implied. Mm -hmm. He is... Or his symptomology is organic in the film, and he doesn't do anything that I think is just a mechanism of the plot. Like, sure, it does propel the plot, but it doesn't feel exploitative. Uh, no, I would agree. You know, I think being obsessive about certain things is very common for autism. Um, and, and just so people don't think that we're spouting out our asses, you're an educator. I used to be a disability rights attorney, so this is not just people being like, hey, you know, autism's interesting because I read something on Reddit about the spectrum. This, right. That's not what this is. Right. And, and so that's interesting with you even saying, with you saying that, I would not have assumed that he was autistic. But, I, you know, there were certain uh, indicators, I guess you could say. Well, it looks like he, you know, he does kind of the eye roll and he doesn't really look people in the eye from what I can recall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, distracted mannerisms. Uh, certain amounts of disengagement, and he doesn't seem to really understand the situations, mm -hmm. uh, the social circumstances, mm -hmm. until you get to the scene with the uh, long johns later on. Right. But that well, makes sense. At, at first, I assumed that he was blind because his oh. hearing was so attuned, yeah. like, and and he could mimic that. And you know, usually if you have one sense gone, you know, others are heightened. So I that's what I originally assumed. But then I, as the movie went on, you can realize that it's not he's not blind he you know yeah uh so we go on then it's josh brolin eating pistachios with his latex gloves which i just love it's kind of you know we just recently did the faculty and you have this teacher who mr tate is smoking a cigarette in front of a no smoking sign and so here you have these fucking gloves so that it's sanitary doesn't compromise a crime scene and there he is compromising it himself it's just i love those little in details because you already get this character you know He's got a bad attitude. He's self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. It establishes a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, they, he takes, was a Peter man, and they go down into the basement, and they find Poopy yeah. hanging from the ceiling. And I have a pun for you. They are stalag shites. Okay. That was a good pity laugh. No. Thank you. <laughs> Um, at first, my first note was filth shit on the ceiling and it looked like a, a thrashed hotel room. And so I wrote Alice Cooper question mark, Cooper question mark. Sorry, I had to. Uh, so <laughs> I felt like when, you know, when you were just saying that him eating, uh, the pistachios with the glove, that's because I knew what was coming up. So I felt like he was just like, ah, whatever, you know, like I touch shit every day, but I still don't care if it's going to eat with my hands. Yeah, who cares so, if it's bug shit with some uh, pistachio dust yeah. on it, right? So then we kind of abruptly cut from there uh, to Mia, sort of, Romy and Michelle, and her friend who's taking pictures of herself with Polaroid, uh, which is... Oh, I thought it was her sister. I honestly don't care. She's the star of Mimic 2, from what I can tell oh, on okay. IMDb. Uh, so just as a forewarning to you, this my, our dear audience, I might subject my wife to watching both of these sequels and doing follow-up episodes, depending on how well-received this effort is. <laughs> uh, so she's taking these pictures of herself, which, you know, you have to introduce the concept. It's kind of like when Kevin McAllister is rec recording himself with a talk boy in the second Home Alone, because then it, it has a payoff at the end. It's because if you just saw someone doing it and there's no explanation, it's kind of weird. Uh, you wouldn't just conveniently have a Polaroid camera because this is before cell phones. Right, just right. Pull out her cell phone right. So I thought that, that was kind of interesting, but I also was really uncomfortable by this conversation that they had 
when they're walking up the stairs, she's talking about a guy trying to roofie her. Yes. That's fucked. Yes. And, like, that's a complete throwaway. Well, it's good to know, like, the dating scene was just as terrible back then as it <laughs> Good is to know. That, that, that emboldens you as a woman to know no. that women have suffered. <laughs> just days no, after the women's saying. march in L.A. No, for people in general. She they is can take, so hard. They can take comfort in the fact that, you know. They're not the only ones out there. Yeah. Not that we have to, we're on the dating scene currently and haven't been for a while. But, you know, we hear our family and other people just talking about how shitty it is. So, it's anyway. Horrifying. So, yes. <laughs> so, then the kids come up. Uh, the toothy kid and Keenan from Keenan and Kel. It's not actually him, but he has that kind of disposition. And they're like, we've come to barter. And they have this box, and they're giving me a sorbina of these, or Romy and Michelle, rather, these bugs, and she offers to buy them. And the kid says to her at one point, whatever peels your banana, lady. Have you ever heard that expression? No, but I liked it when I heard yeah, like, it. I was just like, oh, I knew like, what he whatever was talking floats about. your boat, whatever peels your banana. I, uh, I like it. Unsheathes your condom. Is that? <laughs> well, that no, too okay. Far. All right, well... Then they sell her like the big bug, right? That right. Kind of and I love that the one kid's like, this is a meal ticket, son. And they just sell it off anyway. And so let me know, did you like this as film student 101? They established that the window's open. It blows right. the paper. Right. They close the window and then the box scuttles. I liked that. Yeah. And then. Because that, because, well, I think that was good because. The bugs that they had previous, like that she was pulling out, were dead. Yeah. You know, so you assume like, oh, okay, this is just another creature. It was dead. But the fact that it scuttles, you're like, oh, oh no. Yeah. And one of the further foreboding elements it goes downstairs to an exterior shot of the window. And there's a silhouetted character. Yeah. And you see a breath of air come out. And at that point, you're still thinking, like, it's this shadowy human. Right. Later on, it has a huge plot point because they establish that these bugs have lungs. Yeah. To show that they've evolved, which is why they're able to get huge. And it's something so interesting because the way that it's shot, I vividly remembered that breath of air coming out. And so when I saw it later and they say it has lungs, I was like, oh, wow, that's great continuity without it being overtly over the head. Like he breathes out and goes, man, I'm sure glad I have these fucking lungs. You're right. So we move on. She apparently just doesn't care about science at this point. And she's just so enamored with this thing. She's like touching it with her hands. Like, you know, this thing is lethal potentially. Why? And she gets stung or bit. She doesn't know that it's lethal. She doesn't realize what it is at first. She doesn't realize what kind of bug it is until she, she like stabs it and she sees the foam come out, which is what you see at the beginning of the film. You know, when they, when she releases them into the sewer and they're, you know, that's how it spreads its DNA to the other cockroaches and kills them. Yeah. Right. And what's interesting, this is the first time you jumped in the movie. I made a note, a running tally of the times and you jumped hard when she got stung in the hand. It was great. Oh, yeah. That, it looked painful. <laughs> and I was not expecting it because you don't think like cockroaches like bite, you know? Bro. This is day one horror stuff. Okay, well, for someone that doesn't You know. watched that movie Life With Me, right? With Calvin, the weird amoeba from space. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, don't ever take your fucking latex-gloved hand and touch uh, an alien or whatever. Okay, You're gonna get okay. it. The thing that I thought you were jumping at more than anything was like, that's not sanitary. No. no. <laughs> She's gonna get an infection. <laughs> no. Well, and it was interesting because she looked at her hand, but it didn't seem to... There was no, like, mark or... Yeah. No. 
like nothing. So I'm like, okay, did it? What did it do? Because she is overreacting. Well, because then, because I, I didn't real, you know, like I didn't know, like, oh, can it now infect humans that way? You think, yeah, I, you know, but especially then nothing on, happened. So like whatever. Leonard ends up getting wounded, and you're like, hey, did he? You know, is he gonna get bugism? Right. I was worried about that too. I'm glad they don't go that route. Right. right, right. Too many things infect. I get that it's a great fear to rely on. I can the idea of being compromised, it's not worth it. Um then they go into the talk about they were genetically engineered to have one hundred percent sterility, a suicide gene, and their lifespan was supposed to be hundred and fifty to hundred and eighty days. Uh, and then this is my note. Right, six months, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nature uh, finds a way. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, you're by this point, what, three years removed from Jurassic Park? So I don't think that it's necessarily derivative, but I think that the comparison's pretty clearly there. But, well, I think it's more like attuned to like Jurassic Park movies today. You know how they are doing more genetic modifications to the dinosaurs and their DNA now. Anyway. But yeah, that's what it kind of reminded me of. of like, oh, now we're going to take all these species and put them together. And we don't really know. Like, we're assuming that this is what's going to happen because they're in a lab setting. So it's yeah. very controlled. But as well, the other said, character, like her professor or mentor, I i don't know. The guy from Amadeus, yeah. Yeah. It says, like, you put them into the world. Which is the biggest lab, he says. Yeah. It's not under your control anymore. Like, they're out there figuring it out. And they have to, like, they're going to they're gonna try and survive or do what they can to survive. And this is what's happened. Yeah. You know? So, you fucked up. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> uh, so, they talk- And he, well, sorry. What? And you kind of see that discussed in their initial press release. Oh, yeah. You can see it on his face. Like, he actually walks out and yeah. was like, no. But then when he confronts her later in the movie, he's like, well, I can't really judge you because I have two grandkids that are alive now today because of you. Yeah. So he's it's like, like... people who want to, like, criticize, you know, nuclear arms. It's like, well, it stopped a war. And people who want to... I mean, there are benefits. And especially when you go to the true motives of somebody, she has altruistic motives. She's not trying to just eradicate cockroaches. It'd be one thing if they're like, you know what? We're gonna I just don't like this bug. Yeah. It's annoying. A new raid campaign. Yeah, right. No, that's not what this is. She has good intentions. So it also it, it it's a huge distinction between the folly of man being hubris. You know, it's not just that she's overly uh, assured in her abilities as a scientist. She wants to try and effectuate positive change. Agreed. So then there's the scene. Well, it's kind of the exact same scene, but you have. Mr. Cool New Shoeshine Guy say that there's Jesus on the cross, but that is not a holy place. Was that like a little too dramatic or did you like it? No, I liked it because it was a church, right? Beforehand, that's why we saw the ping. What what was it? Harry Ping. Yeah, Harry Ping. Uh, Get dragged out from that spot, right? As a disclaimer, we're not racist. Every one of the credits or websites refer to him solely as preacher, but then in one instance in the movie they say Harry something, and that's why we're confused on his name. But yeah, and I think that even more so than the idea that there's some giant bug monster there, you got Mr. Cool Shoeshine. I think that he's also vaguely aware that they are using this as a front to bring in illegal immigrants. So I think at the very least there's that, which is why he'd say it's, you know, not a holy place. Well, okay, so at the beginning of the movie, or when they are investigating the preacher's disappearance, 
there are people in there, right? Because he goes and looks through the basement window, and there's actually people in there that are quarantined. No, I think. To my understanding, or or they're just trafficked. Yeah, they're being being trafficked. Okay. And because um, he's talking about all the bacteria, and then right, that's what I yeah. thought. That's why I thought quarantine because he was talking about the bacteria. No, I think that it's supposed to be kind of shady. Okay. Well, I mean, I might be adding to it just because of the seedy nature of the culture in this movie. Oh, right. I mean, it's very similar to movies like Dark City and Seven. Um, Guillermo del Toro even talked about going to the movies and seeing Seven when he was already well into production on this movie and being like, oh, that's the movie I'm making in terms of the aesthetic and everything. So I might be kind of adding more of a dire tone to it because of those. So we move on, go to the subway. We have a cop getting his shoe shined. And we have Peterman and uh, Romeo and Michelle getting those two kids to try and show them where they found the big bug. And there's a cop getting his shoe shined. Three children. Doesn't ask why none of them are in school. And it's clearly a weekday because Romeo and Michelle later asks why Spoons is not in school. Right, right. Mm, does that bother you as an educator? This is truancy. Rampant <laughs> truancy. No, I feel like there are... I mean, maybe a little just because he was getting his shoe shine. Cause, so it's like, okay, you're, you're taking... Well, maybe maybe he's on his break. You know, Government we'll employees, I see what's up. <laughs> Solidarity. <laughs> You know, it's union. not that he's, you know, falling down on the job. He's just, he's not afraid. you got to give him his time. All right, his me time. <laughs> but just to be fair, all he has to do is ask one question. He doesn't have to get up or well, interrupt his shoe shine. But that's kind of a nonsensical <laughs> point. They, you know, they end up going into this kind of locker room that's clearly <laughs> been derelict for a long time. Uh, Romy and Michelle touches some kind of bead thing. I don't know if it was supposed to be connected or what. Oh, it was a bracelet that like broke and fell on the floor. Yeah. So the beads roll underneath the locker and it's kinda yeah. like the Hardy Boys because it rolls off and they realize that there's a subterranean thing. Yeah. Peter Man tries to shine a flashlight under, drops it, and then she's like, I got tiny arms. This is what I made for Yeah, you know, to paraphrase Guardians of the Galaxy, they're good for thieving. So she's reaching for the flashlight, flashlight and there's the the Long John. And I'm sure you're wondering, why the hell are they called Long Johns? I had to do a bunch of research before I remembered that the cop leader talks about the urban legend that's created by the homeless people where they refer to them as Long Johns and Slim something or others. So it's right there. You're like, this bitch is going to get her hand bitten off. You really bought it, didn't you? I did. I, ju- I think that I jumped pretty big when, you know. I have a star here. Jumped uh, at moving tarp. Actually, oh, that's the next part. When they escape that area and they're walking, when the kid kicks a tarp oh, yeah, yeah. and the homeless person's underneath it, you jumped. And it was before the homeless person even jumped out. <laughs> yes. But anyway. I, I was anticipating. She narrowly escapes getting her hand chomped on. Uh, the kids are going off. And, oh, here's an interesting thing. One of the kids says to one of the homeless people, hey, get a job, scab. I was very intrigued by like, where would that kid learn union vernacular and not in school, but he's whatever. on the street. He's cool. Too cool for school. Yes, quite literally. <laughs> uh, and then there is a the next scene is Romy and Michelle asking Cool Shoeshine, doesn't he go to school? And the guy's like, he doesn't need school. He's special. And that's when the kid's making the funny wire figures, and you get Mister uh, Funny Shoes again. And she asks if he's a superhero, which I was like, that's oddly appropriate given that she's dry humping Captain America and the Shadow's illegitimate child and Thanos is in the movie. The kids are then rummaging through all the stuff to try and find the egg sack, the coveted egg sack that would make them so much money. Do you remember what happens there? Yeah. 
So what they're, are they're going, audience? Sorry, they're going through. Set you up, girl. <laughs> they're going, uh, and they've they've found the egg sac, and so they're they're trying to extract it. So they're With going. With his switchblade, yeah, yes. you were so excited that this <laughs> child had a weapon. He just seems so cool, like pulling it out. He's like, Shh. um, and so then he's like, one of the kids is trying to to cut it off and then they hear the ticking or the clicking of the long john and so the keenan character or kel no it's keenan Keenan. okay so he turns around and is like trying to figure out what it is and he sees this shadowed figure again and then it like i like that he's like immediately terrified he's like there's some dude here yeah yeah he he says to like his friend he's like i think there's someone down here and like they're not terrified of like random strangers, which is very odd to me. They live in New York. You can't be. <laughs> well, that's true. But then it descends upon him very quickly. Oh yeah. And you see it for the first time, like his fate, like his, like very up close. Um, yeah, I I think that's fair. You do see the face unobscured a couple times, but it's you know either far away or there's some shadows. I guess it's not entirely unobscured, but yeah, this one you see. <laughs> Everything's like going deep, on. Very vivid detail. Of and, what and they're super is. smart about using shadow to hide bad CG. And that's oh. something that we don't see modernly because I think people are so cocksure of their CGI. They're just like, whatever, it looks great. And then. So then it, it kills uh, Keenan and the other kid. Switchblade. Switchblade. Yeah. If that's his nickname now. <laughs> well, you know, I think that it's very frustrating because Guillermo del Toro, I even read a specific interview where he's talking about he wanted to have a Latino child, a white woman, and a black guy to have a multicultural experience. And then in one of the oldest horror tropes of all time, the black kid gets it first. But is not happy. Well, arguably, it's an Asian guy who gets it first. But I digest. Uh, that's a paraphrase of Hanato Laranja. If you don't like MMA, I'm sorry. If you do, let's be friends. Um, did that shock you that two kids die within the span of a second on screen too? Uh, yeah, but I was pleasantly surprised. Like I thought it was going to be more gruesome. Yeah. You know, I was expecting there to be a lot more blood cool. and gore yeah. and, but it was, I, I thought it was quick and to the point and very, uh, you know, scary, but not overly so. And it subverts your expectations. Because right. naturally you're like, okay, well, at least one of these kids is going to live to be the harbinger and go back and say, hey, this is what I found. Or, hey, my friend just got eaten. And then when they both die, you're like, oh. Yeah, well, I thought that kid was going to escape at first because, uh-huh. you know, he got caught in, like, barbed wire. but And then he just died. I thought it was, I thought it was appropriate. Yeah. Then we go to the insect science man. And he's doing a lecture. He references the mentality of the ant. And he reduces all of life and experience to one sentence, which is, can I eat it or will it eat me? I really like that. You know, it's in no way touched on in the source material. It's very organic, though, because it's it's nice to see a theme. Like, what's frustrating is, like, that's a better tagline than they had in the movie. Uh, and I feel like it so succinctly puts it. Um, he later tells Romy and Michelle, like, she, he refers to them as her little Frankensteins because she had put these creatures together. And he says that evolution has a way of keeping things alive. Again, Jurassic Park, so close to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really didn't like that line. But I do like that it's kind of a breadcrumb for when you get to her speech at the end. Because she later explains 
You know, if they have a rapid life cycle of 150 to 180 days, we've been here for three years. Right. Think of how many generations. So she estimates like 40,000 Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Like the adaptation of the species through the, you know, evolution, right? Uh, it's just sped up because their life cycle is so short. That scene I thought was, it was good. That's also the scene you referred to earlier where he's like, well, I have grandkids that are alive mm-hmm. today because of you. So it, it, I can't be too critical. Then we get to... Uh, spoons going to the church, even though he's not supposed to, climbing down the fire escape at night. and Right, he sneak, sneaks out the window, mm-hmm. climbs down the fire escape, and goes over there because he, he he hears... Yeah. Uh, oh, no, he sees Mr. Funny Shoes walking in the front, I think. Okay. Or he hears him. Whatever, both. No, I think that he sees him. Uh, so then he's like, oh, I'm going to go follow him and see if I can imitate him or, you know, meet him. And so he climbs down and goes across to the unholy place. And climbs in, and I, of course, well, am like... he first tries to climb in, and he drops one of the wire figures, which ends up being kind of a breadcrumb later right. on. Right, well, yeah. To use the same metaphor twice. Um, so that was very suspenseful, because I was just like, oh no, this is not going to end well. Oh yeah. Right? And so he, he goes in, climbs into this the church, and you see a whole bunch of these statues, like, wrapped up in plastic... Yep. Which is so creepy because obviously, I mean, for me, I'm just like, okay, which one of these things is going to move and jump out? Mm-hmm. And they don't. Exactly. <laughs> and so. It's so good because even I was sitting there like, I, I know I've seen this movie and I'm very familiar with horror. So I'm like expecting the trope of, you know, he walks by and in plain sight it's there. But I really liked it because it's almost like they're in chrysalis uh-huh. uh, when they're in these plastic forms. Um, so he starts clicking on the spoons and then you have one long shot. And that's all we've ever seen at this point. Right, right. So he's like, what's up, dude? And he looks very hopeful and eager. And again, doesn't seem to understand the consequences of the situation. Right. And then another comes out from behind. And my initial instinct is, oh, shit, that's the king and queen. And then you know, you find out that it's not. But it seemed, and correct me if you think there's some different, the way that they their mannerisms were. One of the long johns very seems to be inviting. And the other one's immediately hostile. And so I thought... Do you think that it's almost showing like kind of a duality or do you think that one was just being bait for the other one to get him? Hmm. Because they don't end up killing him. Spoiler alert. Right. Right. Well, that's a good point. I, I didn't think about it as like one is, is the bait and he's trying to draw the child in. I almost thought about it as like, okay, well they're trying to adapt to and mimic humans. And so maybe they just had different, hosts or like different examples to yeah to mimic so maybe one had been out and spent more time with humans so they saw you know the interaction and then maybe the other one was very much of like a soldier mentality of like oh no i have to protect the nest or you know whatever and then so you immediately go from the situation where you're afraid of the for this child and boom romeo and michelle is taking a pregnancy test and looking at her belly and given that I don't have those reproductive organs, I felt like, oh, this is a quaint scene. I like it. It shows she's very eager about life and maternal instincts. As a woman, more importantly, as a woman who is a mother, did that strike true to you at all? Because I don't think I ever remember you while you're pregnant, sitting there, like, looking at your belly and smiling and going, hee, hee, hee. And then... And I certainly, if I may, I did not pull a Peter man and touch my forehead with a pea-covered stick. This is a very weird scene in some ways, but as a woman, how did it affect you? 
Uh, or did it affect you? It didn't. And no. that's the thing. I thought it wasn't necessary. I thought, you know, like, I think that it could have very easily been like, oh, you know, we're trying to have kids or a one line thing to show like, oh, that this is why she has a maternal nature, like why she's concerned about this child, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that her just asking questions earlier in the movie would have sufficed. Yeah. You know, like I, I didn't need the scene. It didn't speak to me as a mother or a woman. Didn't get the old baby maker uh, no. revved up. No, very okay. weird. Uh, so we go from that scene. Uh, we have a very young Norman Reedus who later became famous for being on The Walking Dead uh, and playing a character named Jeremy who effectively works in the sewer and gets yeah. stuff out. Yeah. I thought that was a very yes. fun scene. Um, it reminded me a lot of like the scenes in like a sci-fi movie where you have some redneck who finds like some technology and like, oh, Geodolu dead. Um, great way of just kickstarting the plot and sending it way downfield. Because like you said, we go from the scene that really doesn't change anything. It gives you a little bit of backstory, but effectively has no consequence to, oh, hey, we have literal physical evidence of a giant bug. Let's go. Right. I liked I, I liked that scene a lot. And I liked that the, there was a connection because you're like, well, how did this guy contact her? Right. This no name, nobody that wouldn't know, you know, who she was at all. Oh, it was the sister or friend, yeah. you know, that was and taking pictures of band. herself. Yeah, that he plays bass in the run. Uh, so that's why she and he was just like, oh, yeah, I remember that, you know, she had said something about her friend or, you know, whatever, collecting bugs. So he thought that they would want to know. Yeah. It goes to the next scene. We got Mr. Cool Shoeshine. He's all excited to talk to his grandson or whatever. Pulls back the curtain. This like funny cowboy type sheet and sees kid is gone. He immediately looks at that church. And you and I, as parents of a little mischievous child, (laughs) I, I, that exact thing where I'm like, she's walk, she's crawling to the dog food again. This little motherfucker is crawling to this dog food again. (laughs) Even though I can't see her in my direct line of sight, I know what's happening. Right. That was way more effective to me as a parent than the pregnancy scene. It's very funny. We go, there's the visual of like the seven story drop because you have Josh, Leonard, and Peterman. And it's very akin to the termites in the earlier scene when she's teaching the two little thug kids about how termites are you know, going to handle invaders, uh, which I thought was great. Visual callbacks are huge and without being overt. Like, it's not as though Peterman's like, hey, would you look at this? This is like my wife's termite sanctuary. It's just organic and we're moving forward. I have a big question for you. We move forward. We go back to Professor Science Man mm-hmm. and he's grading in red pen. Did that set off any triggers for you? Because I think modernly it's supposed to be purple, green, anything but any, red. Anything but red. That blows my mind. Uh, it did not. I don't know. I, th- I think that's so funny because I don't even remember that scene. So well, It might have only matter to me because I, you know, I could jab at you during <laughs> yeah. this recording. Oh, uh, yeah. So then, you know, he's talking about when he's looking at the creature that she, the you know friend or sister, whoever brings. Yeah. He is very distinct in saying this one is not... Uh, some other creature. It is a subclass of a, a warrior cast. So he's talking about this is not a one-off. This isn't a, a genetic freak. This is part of a very structured organism. Um, and of a hive, right? What do you think? Yeah, I like that, that that they explain like, oh, there's this isn't just one. There's more, and there's a lot more. Not just you know like a couple here and there. Yeah. This is a 
humongous. This is going to be a nest. This is going to be a hive. And so you're like, oh, oh, so they're everywhere now. So that I liked that a lot. Um, It adds consequence too, right? Because we're not just worried about two creatures living happily amongst themselves. Right. Yeah. We then go down to the subway. We have Romy and Michelle. She's taking the two Polaroids and pushing the faces together, the sides together. I don't know if it's carapace or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't know my bud or my bug physiology as well as I ought to have. But she realizes it mimics a human face. Yes. And so that was very fun. She looks at the shadow and she's like, "Hey, do you have the time?" Oh yes, because she's down in the subway yeah. waiting for Peterman because he went with the cop and so they're like she's like okay where is he what what, you know he's turning up and i liked the the connection because i was like at first i was like well where did she get these photographs and then i realized ah yes it was the friend that was taking photographs of everything and then putting them together that was such a good reveal but then which they waste in the trailer by the way oh and luckily you hadn't really seen the trailer no i hadn't then she realizes like oh i'm kind of like in the subway alone now and sees the shadow again and so she's like oh excuse me can i have the time and then very quickly realizes this is not a person. Nope. I, you know, and so the Long John descends upon her again. Super quick. Very quickly. Yeah. I, that's what I really appreciated about these creatures yeah. was that they did have a lot of features that I would think of like a cockroach. Like they could get through um, very small passages very quickly and like very, you know, kind of scuttled yeah. around, well, which I you. think is hard to portray in giant form yeah but i I liked that so anyway so it descends upon her grabs her and flies her into subway the two yeah now did you think that the side profile of the long john where you see that it's you know it's a puppet but you see it moving it's very real and oozy was that more effective or because as i'm watching it i'm like oh the reveal is going to be that it's, you know, the cloak is going to flick out and you're going to realize that they're wings of the shadow and then it's going to go. That's what I was expecting. Which do you think would be better? I think at that point, the less is more is better. You, I'm probably not explaining myself. You know, there's the scene where he's silhouetted with the shadow up against yeah. the side. Yeah. So he, it's a very, you know, he's standing like a column. Mm-hmm. And so if the shadow fluttered its wings out, almost like, you remember Michael Keaton and Batman? Like, flared, yeah. Something like that. But maybe it might just be the fact that I'm a man child and I was thinking, man. If he pulled the Batman right now, that'd be so dope. <laughs> uh, so let's just keep moving because you, you gave me the look like I have no idea what you're saying. But you do see the wings and the legs just coming at her. So you would have rather seen it in the shadow rather yeah. than just in front. Exactly. So I wouldn't rather. I, I I wish that they would have done a brief flicker like that previous to this scene. So like. To, you know, when you see the shadowed figure, you know, maybe down on the street or, you know, looking at the kid or some time before, just like a brief, like where you're like, oh, this isn't right. I agree with that. Okay. I think that's fair. That way you're getting, you're revving it up. Yes. Because the first one you see the exhale, the second one you see the wings, and this one it's like off to the races. So then uh, we cut, you got Thanos is trying to save. Oh, I'm sorry. What do we call him? Billy Ray Cyrus is trying to save Peterman and the cop uh, show tunes because they fell into this area. And yeah, he's like, because oh. the the cop stomps on one of the creatures. The whole reason they're down there. Yes, to find it. Right. And he, so he stomps on it and kills it because it's humongous, bigger than he realized. And then they, it, they're on a scaffolding that breaks and they fall, you know, a few stories. So he's going to try and figure everything out. We then cut back to Romy and Michelle. She wakes up and she's in this kind of nest 
and she sees like a pipe so she goes and tries to get it she realizes it's stabbed through like a human and she's like yeah have you ever been scared enough in a situation where you've literally covered your mouth with your hand to prevent yourself from gasping audibly no thank goodness well she did and i Uh, I was like that makes sense in this scene i mean because like she knows vaguely what her assailant is if it's a bug and the bug more that she designed so whatever the only time i think has been when you've subjected me to watching horror movies and i'm like no no help me <laughs> this is not spousal abuse <laughs> i will make you sign a post-nuptial agreement to say so uh did you so one of the things that was interesting too when she's going for the cross or excuse me when she's going for the bar she sees like the shining cross and how there's a, so much catholic and christian imagery throughout the movie i honestly don't know how effective it is though because i don't really understand quite the theme i mean i Mm. guess it's supposed to be religion versus science but i don't think there's any reinforcing of the idea that religion is prosperous or or worthwhile so that was kind of weird did you notice that at all um i didn't other than like when they were in the church i didn't actually notice oh i think that i did but and i think that i was just like oh this is the the priest. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it, like, the, I thought that was just a callback to his character. So I didn't, I didn't read into it anymore. Let's we'll say that. Okay. Uh, so then we get bug vision, uh, which is the vision of the bug as it's scuttling towards her. Uh-huh. Uh, did you like it? Because I actually really liked it in the sense that it was camera work. It wasn't a, a, some kind of gimmick. Mm-hmm. In a lot of movies you see predator for example it's thermal vision you see these other things and this was very much an issue of perspective not an issue of special effects so i thought it was way more organic did you like it i know i thought that was good i thought it worked well um and like you were saying i liked the the perspective so we cut from there we got billy ray cyrus he finds the eggs as he's trying to escape to get help Mm. Uh, and then he sees daylight which don't even get me started on how there's so much ambient light underground like this, but whatever. Yeah. He stacks really oddly a sewing machine on top of a table, climbs on top of it. Then as he's trying to get out of this grate, grabs the cord for another sewing machine. I'm like, yeah. I don't remember sewing machines being A, that sturdy or B, that heavy. Uh, but he ends up getting Maybe there's just a lot of sweatshops in uh, New York that they're now yeah. in some that, point. These are all the people we, from that church who are yeah. going and working day job to try and pay their, their toll. Um, did you like you know, Josh Brolin's death? Was It It was kind of boring to me. It's like the goriest death, but it's also Yeah, it was the goriest, actually. Um, I thought it was good. You know, because, again, it showed the speed of these bugs and just, like, the there was, like, no mercy. They just ate his bottom half or just sliced it up. And then you just see the blood pouring out of his mouth. And I thought that was, I thought it was good. I don't know. Yeah, you definitely seem like a less is more. Yes. Like, your imagination, I think, does, yes. just does, uh, yes, it does a serious disservice. <laughs> so the fact that all this really happens under the surface, it's, you know, for those of you who haven't seen this movie in a while, his torso and shoulders are in this effect like a manhole cover. Yeah. And he's crawling out, so it's his legs that get slashed, and then his abdomen, and then he blood pours out of his mouth to show he has down, grievous right? injury. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so I thought that was good. Uh, we move on. So it gets to the point where they find Romy and Michelle, where she's hidden from the bug that had the bug vision earlier. And one scene I thought was really effective. They drop a glow stick 
to try and light her up. Oh, yeah. And as it's going down, the bug is flying yeah, up. Yes, that was really good. That was super fun. It was, you know, visually, you compare it to something like a pulley system, but it's so fast. And it, I like it because it gives you the brief glimpse of that bug, mm-hmm. and then your imagination does the rest mm-hmm. of the work. Um, and that was the first time the other... I, I don't know if it was the cop or um, the shoeshine had seen them for the first time, had seen the bug for the first time, but they're like, holy shit, what was that? I think it might be shoeshine because earlier there's a fake out where she's looking up the hole where she hid from the bug and it's it's shoeshine's yeah, face. Yeah. And so then he goes and finds them and he's like, hey, this lady needs help. What I really like is it shows how calculating these bugs are because before the bug's trying to get down to her uh-huh. and then realizes it can't. So uh-huh. then it's coming up to yep. her. That's, that's problem solving. I would hire this bug <laughs> as an employer. So we move on. Leonard ends up emptying a whole clip into the bug as they enter the subway car. It rips its ass off to scuttle yeah. around, which I was like, damn, that's determination. Again, it's a, it's a problem solver. It's determined. This is the ideal employee. It then scuttles its torso and head under a shelf. It fakes death. They're like, oh, it's dead. We don't have to worry. Boom. He gets it in the lab. Yep. What do you think of the effects? Because they don't really show a gangrenous wound. They just more show like bloody rags around Leonard's like show tunes. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I was glad that, you know, I was very much expecting like, oh, when these bugs, you know, attack someone or... or it caused them wounds that they're somehow going to be like infected now or like, I don't know. It, I like that it was just a wound. It wasn't some crazy like disease spreading, you yeah. know, device. You're not talking about Jeff Goldblum and the fly turning <laughs> into a fly or something. Right. So uh, we move along. She's analyzing the dead one after it gets its head shot off. And this is where she finds out they have lungs and then says that insects don't have lungs, which is why they stay small. Um, so which explains how these ones got to be so huge. This is where she talks about them. She says, quote, they, or they imitate us, infiltrate us, which has a nice proximate rhyme. Uh, yeah. It's rhythmic. It's one of those things that sticks in your head. You know, it's the glove don't fit. You must acquit. In the dialogue, we're like, oh, that's what's going on. That's where the, the in the scene, they're, they're looking at the bug. And then a lot of the other Long Johns come and swarm the car that they're, the subway car that they're in because they can smell um, Showtune's blood. Yeah. And so she's like, oh, no, you got to rub all their scent on the windows so they don't smell. And then they go away and then they do. Yeah, so she masks them with bug goo. Right. Which is just a weird scene. And this is kind of where the... The part where I'm like, nah, we've get into the part that's just taken a little bit too long. Well, and it's, it, this one is more a Jurassic Park ripoff than others, I think, because it's it's your trick. It's right. your Arnold Schwarzenegger covered in mud. It's your Sam Neill standing still. Because later on, Peterman even is standing there and the bug goes right past Right, him. right. I was like, I don't need it. I, you could have had a more organic plot. Um, so we move. Um, there's a jump. So he, that's where I was saying uh, they end up deciding that Peterman is going to rewire the situation so they can get that car moving and go, um, which is fine. Uh, Manny ends up finding Chewy or um, Spoons. So right. for those of you who are keeping up with this, uh, you have Cool Shoe Shine finds Spoons. And Spoons is just like, what's up, Grandpa? This is, Life is great. I'm not worried or afraid or anything. Yeah. And his grandpa gets viciously ripped apart in front of him. Yes. So I think that's like the first time he really seems to understand the These consequences. Are not friendly. Yeah. Um, the circuit I thought was interesting. Did I read too much into this? So Peterman is closing the circuit. 
to get the electricity working. Uh-huh. He uses his glasses. Uh-huh. Do you think that that is meant to be a symbol for knowledge and the Promethean conquest of fire? Or is it just stupid? It's either really intelligent or it's really stupid. Because it's like, smart guy use glasses make science. Or it's something deep. I did not read into it. But again, this was my first time seeing it. So I think it was just a conductor. Because his glasses were metal. Yeah. And so he's like, oh. Okay, if it's metal, I just need a conductor to connect these two wires and and to make it work. Personal. You know, you, maybe, Personally, I'm sorry. Not going to tell you how you to know. be a spouse, but maybe just encourage me sometime. <laughs> uh, You're clearly more intellectual and, and more, you know. <laughs> I am the dumbest person that we know. I have the potential to be smart, but I waste my capacity thinking about dumb shit. I guarantee the filmmakers did not think about that scene as much as I just did. <laughs> Romy and Michelle finds Manny's bloody rosary and she ends up having it, which I don't know if it's meant to be like the mantle because at the end when she and uh, Spoons are together, you can very constantly see that rosary. So I don't know if it's like she is the matriarch for what it was his patriarch. Yeah, I feel like that that is that is appropriate symbolism that I that you would read into. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, I've redeemed myself. Uh, so Leonard is bleeding. He ends up acting as bait, and I thought it was fun, where he's like saying, I've seen the guy trio triumphantly go off and get himself killed before, but it was good. It didn't offend my sensibilities. Then you have the king dropping through. Right. Well, and that's, I think that why I was just like, like this whole part was so pointless, because they didn't even use the, the subway car, which the whole plan was to use the subway car to escape, and that just didn't even happen. So I'm like... Why was this here? Yeah. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so you see the king now drop in to Romeo and Michelle, and she's like, oh, shit. this is the king, right? This yeah. is the guy that I have to kill, or else they're going to continue to reproduce. Because even if we kill all the rest and not him, like, this will continue to yeah. be it. And, and they're going to migrate out because she was looking at the subway system and then she's like, oh, they're going to escape the city. Like, we have to contain this. Yeah. So her... Let me ask you this. Were you intimidated by the king at all? No. Not at all. No. It looks I did terrible. not. I, yeah, I was like, it was the same size as all the other ones. There was no, like, distinct features showing that this was the guy. Well, just didn't have wings. Well, right. In but, which they alluded to earlier. But it was, like, the game. same color. Like, it just didn't, it, it was not imposing. Well, like, compare it to Aliens. Because that's one of the things people online compare this movie to Alien and Aliens all the time. And I can understand why visually. But you think of the scene with Sigourney Weaver and Aliens 2, or, or just Aliens, where she does the, get away from her, you bitch, and she's in the power loader. Like, yeah. the queen is amazing. Right, right. Like, that puppet blows my fucking mind. Like, I am a 30-plus-year-old man who sits there, and I just go, I mean, I think it's like 16 people yeah. at one point. And then you have this crappy CGI. I'm like, I understand budget's an issue, but it's so weak. And then immediately thereafter... She yells at the king and sells her, you know, you get away from him. Or no, she says, you will not hurt him, no. And I was like, I even wrote down Ripley question mark. Like, it was so bad. Yeah. And so she cuts herself with the cross on the oh, hand. Right. Her fucking stigmata. Yeah. He comes after her. <laughs> she gets him killed by a train. Uh, which I was like, if this bug, to your point, has these amazing reflexes, yeah. this amazing athleticism, he just dies. 
he just gets hit by if she has the re- the reflexive abilities to jump around the train the fact that he didn't was like ooh that whole scene i was just thinking like where's the kid <laughs> sorry yeah. like i they just shows like i just didn't care about that like it was not suspenseful it was not interesting to me you see the bug get hit and it's being drugged underneath the uh subway car you see his like body parts rip off one by one i thought i was like i was like all right that's kind of cool they recycle that in hellboy he's fighting that one monster and it gets hit by the truck or the train same thing yeah so then after she comes back out she's like oh okay everything's fine and then she finds the kid and they oh we skipped over Peterman ends up oh, in the yeah. egg colony Sorry. room, which is very similar to the you know the concept from Alien in the spacecraft, yep. where you have all the eggs. There's even a scene where one of the eggs is bursting open a little bit, and you can kind of see what's you know under there. He, I did like that effect, the like the goop of it opening. Anyway, it was fair. I mean, if I hadn't seen it before, it would have blown. Oh, up. that's true. So he uses the gas that's already leaking and starts a fire, blows it up, jumps underwater. And then scientist man is like, nothing could have survived down there. And I'm like, first of all, you're a scientist. The fact that you're making these conclusory statements just pisses me off. Yeah. But then I'm like, bro, I know from IMDb that there's two sequels to this movie. So surely something survives. But I'm going to give him a slide. Because when Romy and Michelle and Spoons are looking down on the subway, there's the silhouette. And you're yeah. like, fuck, dog, one of them lived. That's what I totally thought. But then it's Peterman. Yeah, and I was like, all I right, know. I'll give you that. Because, like, as they're making this movie, I don't think that they thought they were going to do two direct-to-video sequels. Yeah. So, and plus, neither of those have the director, writer, stars, so whatever. Um, the kid, Romy and Michelle, Peterman, they all hug. And I will quote you directly, because I wrote it down verbatim. <laughs> what? That's it? You were pissed. And I asked you why, and you were expecting them to jump forward and like a where were they now style. <laughs> because I wanted to see, to make sure, like, I mean, obviously, like, you assume that the kid stays with them or and they become a family because she's been wanting a child, right? She's Whatever. Barren. Right. And so I, you know, I was just like a little bit of a glimpse into like a happy family scene. But again, that's, you know my I like it. It's fun. happy endings. So there are two alternate endings that I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> well you already know the one that I want. Yeah I do. <laughs> so both of these are gonna disappoint you. The question is if it disappoints you as much or less than the movie we actually saw. Because I don't know if you know this, we're reviewing the movie we saw, oh, not the oh. one we imagined in our minds. Dang. I re- I do that too. When I recently guessed it on the Cult Classic Mania podcast, I wanted to review the Bud the Chud two that I had in my brain because it was much better than what I said. Right. So alternate ending number one, they escape at different portions of the subway. They all meet together and they, they hug and the kid looks around and he can hear the clicking and so he starts doing the spoons to show that the infiltration is still there and it's on going and it's out spreading, which is a cheap way of doing it, kind of um, you know foreboding. I like that ending quite a bit, actually. I think I like it better than the ending that we got. The other ending... I, I, I have gone, it's in the 13 hours since we watched this movie, I have 180 probably 10 times about this ending. The king doesn't die because of the drain, and at one point he steps out of the shadows, and he is formed, and he mimics the exact image of a naked human male to show it, like, the mimic is perfect at this point, and he points and he just says, leave. And so they escape. So he has this, like, mercy and lets them go as if he effectively becomes their equal. 
I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too pseudo intellectual, but I I think that where we sit right now, I do like that ending. Uh, <laughs> I do not like that ending. I'm going to be honest with you. I do not. Um, I like the idea of it surviving and you seeing that. Now, I was thinking more of like when you were when you started explaining, it, my mind went to okay, this could be like a rebirth scenario so again it's another um what what generation sorry looking hatches comes out yeah it's something yeah so like it's rebirth and i think it would have been interesting to see almost like a infantile creature like the egg opens and you hear or it looks like a baby like a small human face rather than you know like oh it just went on well, right. I think that's and one of the it, things I it, like. It is like merciful. I'm like, no. I like this the mercy. This guy is not merciful. It goes to the idea that, you know, is it food or will it eat us? That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I could So, that. whatever. Two things I wanted to touch on as we start wrapping this up. Uh, apparently, Guillermo del Toro wanted uh, Billy Ray Cyrus to be gay. And the Weinsteins <laughs> were like, absolutely not. And that reading that segment did not age well because it was already bad. And then you get to where you are now, where Harvey Weinstein is now. Oh, and here's one that I thought was really interesting. So Del Toro wanted it to be a bark beetle that lived in Central Park. Hmm. And okay. the executive producer uh, who did uh, Close Encounters of Third Kind, Taxi Driver, his name's Michael Phillips. Apparently, this dude is such a fucking gangster. Imagine the scenario. You're at a board meeting. He pops his loafers off. And goes, well, if it's New York, what about cockroaches? And Del Toro's like, no, please, God, we'll never be able to outrun the fact that we did the cockroach movie. And he went and there you do. Yeah. Which I think, like, I think the cockroaches are obviously more scary or gross <gasps> than the other. But I do like that, like, the bark beetle story. I think... A sequel, right? If they had included that bark beetle DNA into the new bug, right? And then the sequel is how they have now transformed. So now they can't survive in the subway. So now they adapt and they survive in Central Park. Oh, sequel. So what you're saying is you want Mimic to the new batch. Yes. So that's actually kind of fun. I think I'd really, I'd enjoy it much more. Um, so mind you, I don't know what the sequel actually is about. I, well, I vaguely know. It's yeah. just one of them escapes and starts. It rips off human faces. Something I read on IMDb. Yeah. Uh, the original concept art had a hat for the uh, Long Johns. It was part of their physiology, but it looked like it was wearing a hat. Better or worse? Mm, no. Yeah, didn't think so either. Mm-hmm. It, it goes to the source material, so I thought that kind of made oh, sense, okay. but it's not important. And the source material is so they, they really it's like. Wouldn't bugs as people be interesting? That's as close as they get. Yeah. So it's not in any way like an homage or anything beyond that. Apparently, he had uh, some other issues with the film studio. At one point, they call him and they're like, you know, they had antenna. And they're like, we don't want the antenna. We want it to look more like aliens. And he's like, but they're bugs. So <laughs> they should be bugs. And they say, okay, well, we want bigger teeth. And he goes, they don't have That's any teeth to right. begin. Then they say they want bigger gums. And he says it doesn't have any gums. And then they say that he wants it to have crazy hair. And he says, they, they don't, don't have, have hair. hair. So, like, I could only... Like, just reading that, it reminded me so many times of when I've had to deal with clients or people. Huh. Where I'm like, you have so 
your expectations are so disassociative to what my job is here. It's baffling. Uh, it's no wonder, like I said, he ended up hating this movie. Because then, they all wanted him to be wanted it to be something that it wasn't. This creature. Yeah. I mean, I guess you know, as the producer of the movie, you know, big wugs, they want the biggest bang for their buck. But it's like you can't change the entire movie because you want it to look a certain way. Yeah, I think it, I understand the thinking of it, but that that is the bastardization of art. Like, it's always hard to be a fan of art because at a certain point, it's always a product. You're always trying to sell it, right? It, 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 the art, the intrinsic value of art should be the art itself. It shouldn't be the value thereof. So when you're looking at it from the perspective of, let's say, a Guillermo del Toro, he's looking at it as art and substance of art. Yeah. Whereas you're looking at it from the executive producers and they're looking at it as a way of making money. Right. So it makes it does not surprise me in the least that they use the great Polaroid shot mm-hmm. in the trailer because that's what's going to pique your interest to make money, even though it kind of ruins that scene later on in the movie if you've seen it. I'm glad that I didn't see it because then I think I would have just been like, oh, this is disappointing. And kind of on that subject, you know, in talking about Guillermo del Toro as an artist, uh, he talked about the idea of making horror films. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, he'd done Kronos and this, which are both horror films. He said a lot of people go into the genre uh, not because they're fascinated about the possibilities of doing a fable with really strange images and rich subtext. I go into it because it's my chosen form of communication. I'm not doing this just because I'm on my way to doing a psychodrama. I just want to do this genre. And I thought that was a beautifully succinct way of saying exactly what separates people who are classic horror directors who are masters of their craft absolutely versus somebody who is using it to propel their career because right. horror movies are cheaper absolutely they are cheaper and they're easier to you know they have the easy of you could say easy like punches of like oh this is you know like the jumps and the scares and the you know and, you know you can hide a lot of things because it is dark and so well, i, and I agree we as horror fans by and large, love homage. We don't mm-hmm. shirk away from it. Whereas, it, it, you know, if you're watching an action movie, you're like, oh, that's derivative of Die Hard. Whereas we're like, ah, there's your reference. And then it's easy for, like, like look at somebody like James Gunn. Somebody who holds himself out as a, a, pro, a provocateur at the time. That's a good way to get a lot of attention. And you're like, oh, well, I'm being extreme, but it fits because I'm doing a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I can dial this back any time and do an indie art house Juno type play. Mm-hmm. In that same interview that I'm talking about, the interviewer asks him if he's ever going to do a romantic film. And he says, I think you can do all of that in a film like this. Yeah. And then what happens? He puts out The Shape of Water and wins the Academy Award. <laughs> so there you go. Before we go... We do a rating system. I don't know if you know, but I made you listen to all the episodes, so you should <laughs> yes. know. We have classic, which yeah. is good, good. Trashic, which is good, bad. And tragic, which is bad, bad. Well, which category do you put it in? Uh, good, bad. You know, I wouldn't say that it's it's terrible, but I wouldn't say that it's like a great horror film. Yeah. It, you know, like there are things that I very much like about it. But then again, it it kind of was a little bit longer than I had liked. And, eh, you know, it had a few things that could have been changed. So that's my personal opinion. But I also have not seen a lot. I don't have a lot to compare to because I I don't usually go and watch movies from this um, genre. Yeah, I actually have to agree with you. I think that it's definitely in the tragic category. If I hadn't seen movies like Jurassic Park, I'm just looking at this one thing. It's fascinating, and I think that the themes get me there. But in this, the themes are too derivative, so I have to look at the substance. And the substance isn't great, 
it's visually exciting. Mm-hmm. It's decently acted. Um, you know, I think that this, in terms of the slashers um, pantheon, I'd compare it to Event Horizon, which is, again, a great concept, not the best execution. I think this is kind of similar. I think that because this is clearly more fleshed out, and I feel like this is much more of a complete movie, like while the director and the production company didn't get along, you don't have 45 minutes worth of material that's turned into 19 seconds. Mm. You don't have all those issues. So I think that it ends up working quite a bit better. Would you recommend this in your daily life? Like if you were just hanging out and somebody was like, I like bugs, would you be like, you got to see Mimic? Or would you just kind of keep it to yourself? And I suggest it for sure. I, I really, I did enjoy it. You know, I, like I said, because I don't watch this genre often, I enjoyed it. I would watch it again. Well, I have a feeling you're going to watch almost the exact same movie two more times <laughs> yeah. when we do Mimic 2 and Mimic 3 Sentinel. So I am a busy little boy, and I read the short story upon which our movie was based. It was a story called Mimic, like I mentioned, by David A. Wuhan. I found a publication that was republished under his name because he had done it under a pseudonym, Martin Pearson, before. Really, that's not important, but I just want people to know the great lengths I went to to find... <laughs> a 70 plus year old short story to review on a podcast that 10 people listen to. Oh, I'm impressed. So one of the first quotes in the story is we search for secrets in the far lands of the Pacific and among the ice fields of the frozen North while under our very noses rubbing shoulders with us every day, there may walk the undiscovered. That's way better than the tagline for our movie, right? Something about, like, man being fine for thousands of years and then <laughs> evolution schmeh. This is better, right? Yeah, and I like the way you read it, too. Yeah, I tried to be a little seductive. It's getting late in the day. I feel like your inhibitions might be down a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, so pretty much whenever I go through the literature upon something, uh, I always want to ask would being more faithful make it better or worse? Because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they are afraid to kill their idols and they think that, oh, well, it's sacrosanct. The book is the best. And that's not necessarily true. There are times that it could be better. You're giving me the look, this crazy look, but I can tell you that there are times where cutting out stuff makes things simpler. I mean, you also have to bear in mind you are the medium that you are accessing people with, it is immediately commoditized. When you're reading a book, when you're 17 hours into the book, you're not sitting there thinking back on the cover price. When you're in a movie theater, up until hour three, you're sitting there like, I better get my money's worth. And so sometimes you have to cut some fluff. This doesn't have any fluff to cut. It's like four pages. Right. But yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't want to sit in a movie theater for 17 hours to, you know, make sure everything is fleshed out. However, the book, that's what makes the book better is that it has all the details that you can enjoy. And- imagine i feel like that's kind of the sales pitch they give to those women who do the the wine (laughs) you know what i mean it's like you can go buy you know your your painting at home goods or you can have a glass of merlot and paint with your gal pals for an entire night and have the exact same sunset painting as all of your friends (laughs) is that fair i mean i haven't done it but yet yeah yet that is true i i have middle age is fast approaching Paint the Nights always kind of crack me up because I'm like, well, where are you going to really hang that in your house? Like, I know you painted that while you were, you know, tipsy, probably. 
So do you, are you going to like put that in your hallway and brag about it? Or it is very interesting to me. I mean, I don't know if I did it. I don't think I would put it up in my house. We have a painting from like a nine year old yeah. in the garage. Right. Well, that's what I was just it's, thinking. I was like, maybe I'd put it in the garage. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing. It's, it's sentimental because it's from a nine-year-old, not a 49-year-old the drink. Uh, hey, hey. I'm not anywhere close to 49. Neither am I. No, but you'll always be older than me, so that's fine. Um, we go into the story. It's from a first-person perspective. And this guy talks about this cloaked man who's been effectively the backdrop of his entire life in his town. Uh, the guy goes off to college and comes back. He ends up getting a job working in a museum as something of a curator. Uh, then he starts to introduce the concept of mimicry uh, throughout. Uh, very often it's anchored with an insect, but mm-hmm. not exclusively. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see, even with a few short pages, that there's a kind of breadcrumbs. Uh, in my case, A, it was ruined because I'd seen the movie a bajillion times. Yeah. And then B, the version I have has a picture with the insects. So you're right. Well, it's kind of compromised. But, you know, we start off the actual climax of the story and the guy is coming home from the museum having worked all night categorizing bugs or something or other and this janitor runs out of his apartment building screaming like oh we are there's a sound from the weird guy's apartment and he heralds the cop and then this curator just follows along not exactly sure why he follows along but you know why does anything happen right um so they go off, uh, they go up to the room, they knock on the door, they hear like this gurgling sound, so they know something's bad on the other side. So they kick the door down and they bust in and they see, you know, the man laying on the floor and, you know, his hat's off and he looks to be fully clothed and there's nobody else in the room. Uh, there's just this metal container in the corner. And the only time that anybody had ever really complained about this man was when he took a bunch of sheet metal up into his apartment, hammered for a few days, and then that was it. It's very odd. Uh, nobody seems to have problems with him. The only times that he ever seems to have problems with anybody else are females. He's kind of apprehensive. So, you know, the shopkeep just says he doesn't like him, but never says that he has a problem. He's the only person who gets face-to-face with this guy. So it's very weird. No furniture. There's some, like, you know, paper and stuff on the floor. It's kind of dirty. And at first, they just think it's a guy who's weird. And then as they get closer, they realize it's not a guy at all. It's an insect. But, you know, they go to the antenna, and those have kind of blended to become eyebrows. Mm. Uh, He has, like, curly hair that's standing straight up. Uh, And when it starts to kind of unravel, he looks and sees there's not a nose there. There's shading so it looks like a nose. So this guy who he's seen on the streets day after day, his whole life growing up, I can't imagine how weird that is to just find out that a homeboy doesn't have a nose. That's crazy. Then they pull the um, cloak and they realize there's another set of arms folded against the chest. So it's completely insectoid. And at this point, the sounds coming from that metal container are getting louder and more intense. So the guy and the cop go over there. They pry it open and there was a wax seal. And then a thousand of the little version of the bug man fly out and shoot out of the open window. You're still with me? Yeah. Okay. So the, the little bugs fly out and they're all looking and they're like, whoa, that's so weird. And the narrator, his first person perspective, he talks about he's the only one of the three who saw this next part, which is a cross 
the street on the next building over, there's a chimney and it's got these two pipes sticking out and all of a sudden it blinks and it comes out and it's as if the camouflage is worn off and it's this giant bug that then goes off and chases the little bug people. Um, That's awesome. Do you think that, is there any part of that that's usable that you think makes the movie better? Ooh. Um, okay. So I feel like comparing the book to the movie. Cause let me tell you this. I thought about it for days as far as how you <sighs> incorporate this into the movie. And I feel like short of it being like a story or a rumor, it's kind of hard for this to be in there without being so distinct. Maybe as like a, a huge you know, flashback and then the new characters are kind of introduced. But I really struggled to find a way that organically fit, especially because the movie is so contextualized with the disease. Well, and, and I think that's the thing. The, the movie doesn't, it seems very different than the story to me. Oh, yeah. So I would say no. You, you know, I couldn't really see them incorporating any of the details that you just mentioned into the movie. Um, maybe possibly like the metal container, but they kind of have their own little cocoons or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, if anything, I think their situation's better. You know, yeah. even though it's somewhat visually derivative of Alien, I think that it's still more imposing than... Because it also seems kind of silly, because the way that they're described is just little versions of the Yeah, body. yeah. It's not as though it's like a pupa or anything that right. develops. So I guess it's a little naive in that regard. And so is this one of the scenarios where you think the movie is better than the yeah. source material? But I think that this is... I mean, they're so distinct. No character names are even introduced. No. There's, you know, the protagonist is completely different. The themes, very different. Uh, but So it, can you compare them? I can't, but I can look at it as uh, the inspiration for the yeah. movie. And I can appreciate, like, something great came out of it. Like, I really enjoy when somebody can take source material and just go off the rails and do their own mm -hmm. radical thing. And it's just awesome. And I feel like that's kind of what Mimic is, because... Guillermo del Toro wrote, you know, with his writing partner and they came up with this movie. And it's just, it's fascinating to me how you get to sick kids dying of a disease from this book mm -hmm. or this novella or whatever. It's not even a novella because I think novellas have to be 70 pages. So this is a blurb. And it's also really interesting because at the time, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, the giant bug or the little person is such a big thing. And so this is fun because it's not the giant bug. It's like your medium-sized giant bug, not your giant giant bug <laughs> like crushing stuff because it's just big enough to be a person and then that's it. Um, and then Right, you not know, your like Godzilla bug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, that, that's cool. Your regular sized bug. <laughs> we don't have time for Mothra around here, okay? Um, so I think that the sense of mystery is interesting. And I think one of the things about it is there's no teaser trailer for this story, at least that I had ever seen. So when it comes to reading it, it was very exciting to me. But I vividly remember, like we talked about earlier, that that Polaroids being put together right. in the trailer, you saw that weeks before you saw the movie. So it's hard to kind of get into it that same way. Um, so, yeah, I have two things to ask you. Do you think that if we renamed Mimic Beauty and the Bees, it would be better or worse? 
divorce. Okay. Do you think <laughs> that if instead of calling them Switchblade and Keenan, we had called them Run the Jewels, this episode would have been better or worse? I like Run the Jewels. There we go. See, we're, we're cracker asses from the Inland Empire, but we got soul? I don't know if soul is what it constitutes, but yeah, anyway. Um, so this has been a fun episode, right? I have enjoyed it. Perfect. Well, my, as my first episode. Of any podcast. Ever. Yeah. Um, and you heard my old crappy MMA podcast when we lived in the apartment, uh, which I did furiously. <laughs> and I couldn't edit, and I just had to put it out, and I had to be upset and sassy about it all the time. So I uh, hope... Well, so. Aren't you still upset and sassy all I the am, time? <laughs> but for other reasons. Uh, we have a mortgage, not rent now. That's one. <laughs> Uh, but I just want to say, formally, on the record, so I can get the maximum amount of brown nosing points, uh, thank you for indulging me, not only with this episode, but also you watched Pet Cemetery with me, which meant a lot. Uh, it was a very good omen to start the show, the show that has been plagued with hosting problems and editing <laughs> problems and promotional problems. It's nice to know that you have not made me feel foolish for embarking on this endeavor. So thank you very much. Um, I, while I have you, would you be willing to plug Slasher's Pod on everything? Pretty much all you have to do is say, Hey, make sure to check us out. Can you do that for me? Yes. Uh, make sure to check out Slasher's Pod on all of the social medias. We have Twitter and Facebook and... I'm momming uh, it out for her. <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> and iTunes and... Google Play. And... Spotify. <laughs> Radio Public. Podbean. Podbay. Overcast. So many things I hadn't even heard of. Uh, but according to our hosting site, people actually use this shit. It's like, how counterculture do you need to be? Just... Get a goddamn iTunes or get a Google Play or Stitcher and be done with it. But I'm happy to accommodate. If you'd like us on any other hosting platforms, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. For two separate fans, I have got us on two separate platforms. And they're the only people who've downloaded it, but it was worth the effort of copying and pasting my RSS feed and submitting it to a stranger. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. You know why I'm excited? I get to use my new sign-off. Oh, here we go. All right. So for Slasher's Pod, my wife has been Sierra, myself has been Jake, and I would like to tell you to enjoy yourselves out there, do something you love, and remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. What do you think? Okay. It's good. I like it. Slash you later. I still like mine. <laughs> <laughs>